Welcome to the Way Life Should Be podcast. Inspiring stories of people who are making the world a better place, the qualities that guide them, and lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Lauren Lombard. So I'm here with Jed Hamoud. He immigrated here from Lebanon and has a fascinating story and excited to dive into his story here. So thank you so much for being here, Jed, and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for asking me to share my story. Uh, I, I love sharing my story because uh, I think it's, uh, it's not unique, but in the fact that uh, I feel very, very blessed and how God has dealt in my life and and but and how He brought me to where I am today. So I love I love sharing my story. Oh, yeah. thank you. So you moved to the United States in ni- in 1971, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you immigrated here. Mm-hmm. And which was what state did you live in when you first moved here? Uh, Pennsylvania. I went to school uh, at Messiah College, which is in Grantham, Pennsylvania. Uh, a suburb of uh, Harrisburg. Okay, Harrisburg. Yeah, I know it well. And what did you study when you were in school there? Well, I started out in college. I had two years of college in Lebanon. Other last two years of college here in the United States. I started out as a physics major. Uh, and But when I came to Messiah College, after my first year there, uh, which would have been my junior year, I found out that if I was to get my degree in physics, I needed to transfer to Temple University in Philadelphia. Mm. Messiah College had an arrangement with Temple University where they actually had a Messiah campus Mm -hmm. within the Temple University campus for Messiah students who want a a major that is not available at the main campus here uh, in Grantham. So anyway, uh, I did not want to transfer because it was my first year. I was insecure. I was getting comfortable. And, and uh, so uh, I basically uh, switched major from uh, physics to mathematics. Mm. And, uh, but I usually say I, I have a, a major in math and minor in physics because actually I completed... You completed more than... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more than enough for I that. pretty much completed much of my... Degree. Yeah, uh, physics uh, courses mm-hmm. to get to, I mean, maybe I had one or two courses left. I would have completed everything. Did that physics. extend your college experience? It, it did. Uh, yeah, it did a little bit. And the other thing, it also extended it. I still graduated within two years, but uh, I, uh, I basically had to take a very heavy load to make up for some of the electives that were required by Messiah College that I did not, you know, that did not transfer from. I mean, I got credit for them, but mm-hmm. they did not transfer towards my major or right. the electives that I took in Lebanon. And so I had a little bit more classes to take yeah. to complete my graduation requirements. So what Messiah. language were the classes you took in Lebanon? What language were you studying in? Uh, English. In English. Uh, the school was... Uh, actually, uh, 
followed the American system, okay. uh, U.S. system. So, so it wasn't too hard for you to transfer no, into the Yeah, all of my system. education in, from, you know, uh, middle school on was uh, basically in English, you know, math, sciences, everything mm -hmm. was really physics, mm -hmm. chemistry, all was all done in English. Excellent. So once you graduated, what were you looking to do with your math degree? In those days, there was no computer science major mm -hmm. in, in schools. And I happened to be one of three students to take the first programming class ever at Messiah College. Mm. And as a result of that, uh, uh, computer companies in those days were gobbling up anyone with a math major, physics major, engineering major, you know, whatever scientific yeah. field for program, because there was no computer classes in, in schools at the time. Right, and you were in the cutting edge yeah. of, of that. And, and so I, uh, I was uh, offered a job uh, with the GE Nuclear Energy Division. Mm. And uh, so I moved from Pennsylvania to California, San Jose, California. That's where GE Nuclear Energy Division is based. And uh, so I started uh, there learning basically if all my other computers uh, experience was really on the job mm -hmm. uh, experience. And uh, so that's, that's how I got into So what interested you in computers? Was it just a fascinating new world or, or was it the challenge or? Well, you know, computers were fascinating to me even when I was in high school. I read about them, I was intrigued by them, I'd never seen one, I never touched one, I know. Uh -huh. and, and when I was in college in Lebanon, I, uh, uh, whenever I had to write a term paper, mm -hmm. uh, I would write it about computers. You know. huh. Again, I haven't seen one or touched one. And then I, until I came to the United States and at Messiah College, like I said, I was one of uh, three students who took uh, the first uh, programming class mm -hmm. uh, at Messiah, and at that time we were offered the the, the uh, we had a teletype and uh, teletype. Uh, yes, it was uh, like a, a uh, like a typewriter, and but it connects through a phone line to a timeshare system that was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh. <laughs> So, yes, I don't even we, had know remote, we had remote connections back then. Yeah, the yeah. You I know. didn't know anything about the teletype. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. And uh, so anyway, so that was the first time that I ever really got my hands to do with anything with computers, was taking that one class for one credit <laughs> <laughs> that uh, got me started. And then you've been working with computers ever since. And I've been with computers ever since, correct. Wow, so you've seen a lot, a lot of change in computers and technology and in oh, yeah. the world in general in the, in the years that followed college. Well, to give you a, a, an idea, we used to store our programs on punched tape. Wow. Roll of tape that yeah. is punched, you know, with the computer, yeah. with, with our programs. Yeah. And uh, you read those through the teletype. It has a, a reader that you mount your paper tape and it reads it and that was our storage media was paper tape then we upgraded to cards computer cards 
uh, or punch cards they call them. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, just... Yeah, yeah just I've seen a lot of changes. Grown exponentially, yeah. I've seen a lot of changes. Yeah. And now the technology that is in smartphones and fits in your oh, pocket yeah. is oh, smaller yeah. than what the computers that took up entire rooms before. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So you were living in California, mm-hmm. and um, what was... You know, what was your life like there? What were you um, involved with? You moved out there for work. Mm -hmm. So you had to adjust to a new life out there. Mm -hmm. Did you know anyone out there? Uh, Actually, I did. Well, I did not know them. Uh, They were uh, at the college, at Messiah College. Uh, Each foreign student had... uh, or international student, had a family that kind of were their sponsors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the family that were my sponsors, and that's, you know, host, as you, I should say sponsor, they were host. Uh, when I came to graduate, they said, uh, uh, we're going to give you a little gift. And they said, we have friends that live in San Jose, California who actually graduated from Messiah many, many, many years earlier. Ah. And he contacted them and uh, they asked them if I could, if uh, they could take me in for a few nights or some of that until I can find a place to live and so on. So I got connected with this family in, in San Jose. So when I went there, uh, they, uh, they happened to have a little trailer in the their backyard that their oldest son lived in who graduated from college, he was about my age, and has moved out of the house for his job. So I took over his trailer for about, I don't know, a month or two until I had my first paycheck and so on and was able to kind of put a down payment in an apartment and so uh-huh. on. But then that family actually became my family. You know, they included me in their family. Oh, wonderful. And, uh, it makes such a difference to have yes, yeah, people yeah. have community and yeah. family that mm-hmm. you can that can help you adjust to a new place, but yeah. also and that that was a, to me that was really a marvelous yeah. transition. Yeah, to have them there and have room to stay, and, and just like I said, they took me in like one of their kids. So, when did you meet your wife? Basically. Uh, I grew up in an orphanage. So why don't why don't you tell me about that? Let's let's go back to <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to your childhood, living growing up in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, you became an orphan, or you were placed okay. in an orphanage with living family members. Okay, my roots are actually Bedouins. Bedouins are the Arab nomads. Bedouin, yeah. Yeah. And nomads live in tents. Mm-hmm. So my family were uh, nomads. And nomads, Bedouins, made their living from herding sheep and goats and camels and donkeys and, mm-hmm. and so on. And then that's how make, they made their living. Uh, my dad was blind. And as a blind man, you know, I don't know if you ever tried to hurt goats in your life? <laughs> Sounds like it'd be very challenging. 
Goats are puffed to herd even when you have both eyes, let alone not having wow. any eyes. Uh-huh. Anyway, well, at the uh, age of five, because of desperation and uh, poverty, my parents felt obliged to kind of send me out with the goats and sheep uh, with other shepherds from the tribe. So it was your way of helping the family because your father wasn't able to contribute in that way. Yeah, and my mother worked in the fields for other farmers and so on. So, you know, other shepherds in the tribe uh, were taking a few sheep and goats. We didn't have that many. I don't know, maybe like five, six sheep and goats. Mm -hmm. Maybe two of each, four of others, something like that. But they felt the obligation to contribute towards, you know, you know, uh, the herding of their, or grazing of their sheep and goats. And so they started sending me out, the other shepherds from the tribe, uh, thinking that they would take care of me and help me out and so on. And I was more they like a symbolic gesture mm. to say that they are, as a representative of the family. Not representative, but at least the family is trying to contribute something towards, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the, the care for their livestock. Well, when uh, being out there in the fields with the other shepherds, uh, I was being abused by them. And, mm. uh, and so when my parents discovered that, the, uh, the, the word got to the chief of the tribe who uh, uh, came and, I mean, it created a problem between my parents and the parents of the other shepherds. And uh, so the chief of the tribe who came to solve this problem, the chief of the tribe is responsible to solving problems within his tribe. That's one mm-hmm. of the duties. And so he took it upon himself to take me from the home uh, and to go live with him. At that time, my family were, the tribe at that time was split. They were part of the tribe living in Syria and part of the tribe living in Lebanon. And how old were you at this time? Five. You were five years old. And the chief was with the part of the tribe that was living in Lebanon, that's where he had his tent mm-hmm. and uh, family, but he would go between the, you know, the, uh, the tribe that, the families of the tribe that are living in Syria and those living in Lebanon. So when he came to Syria to settle this dispute with my, what was going on, he took me uh, to go live with him in Lebanon. Mm. So your yeah. parents were still in Syria? My parents remained in Syria, and so I was living in Lebanon with mm-hmm. the chief mm-hmm. of the tribe. Lived with him for about two years, and at the age of seven by then, we had some uh, visitors that uh, came to the tribe. Uh, they were foreigners, uh, and, uh, and while there, uh, I remember clearly, the, they did not know any Arabic and the chief did not know any English, so they brought an interpreter with them. 
So they were coming to visit the tribe. Mm -hmm. you know? and, uh, and during that course, they asked, they thought I was the chief's son, and when the chief told them, no, his family, one of his parents are part of the tribe, and his father is blind, and I'm taking care of him, and so on. Well, as it turned out, those people actually ran an orphanage. The foreigners ran an orphanage in Lebanon. Yeah, they were missionaries. Mm -hmm. They ran an orphanage in, near Beirut, in, mm -hmm. in Lebanon. So they told the chief of the tribe, it's okay with him if he's willing. So we can take him into the orphanage if that, if that would be okay with you. Mm -hmm. uh, within a couple of weeks after their visit, I found myself at the orphanage. Wow. So what was this like for you? You were taken away from your family without any... You didn't have any say in whether you were living with the chief. And what was it like living with the chief? Was that a good situation that you had? And then again, you don't have a choice that you're moved to this orphanage. You just are informed that you're moving there. Was that traumatic for you to have to you know, be you, uprooted? You know, you know, at that age, you don't, you don't analyze those things. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you know, you just, you just, you just go with the flow. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, living with the chief of the tribe, in some ways it was better than living at home, you know, because of what had happened to me when I was at home. Mm -hmm. So I f felt like, you know, clearly I remember some of that, that I was kind of relieved from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but, you know, you just, you adapt. You, you, you know, I think that's part of our human nature. Yeah. Sometimes we adapt to circumstances that we have no control mm -hmm. over. And so when, when uh, the chief took me to the orphanage and dropped me off there and left, and actually I never saw him after that because he passed away two years later and I did not see mm. him. Uh, but uh, so going back to your question, how did I meet my wife? <laughs> she was the daughter of the missionaries that ran the orphanage. Really? So you moved to this orphanage, and the missionaries that had come to visit were also living at the orphanage and running yes. it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah. they had children. They had one uh, one daughter or more at, more children. At, at that time, they had uh, uh, a boy and a girl, mm -hmm. five year old boy and no no five year old girl. The boy was about my age, mm -hmm. seven years, six mm -hmm. years. And and so you grew up in this orphanage from the age of seven until when? Until actually I came to the United States. But the, uh, the, uh, after I graduated from high school, mm -hmm. basically uh, the, it was uh, orphanage for boys. And the, the boys stayed at the orphanage until they finished high school, or some, some of them quit before, some of them left, some of them ran away, some of them, you can imagine all the scenarios. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed there until I graduated from high school. And then the, every boy at the orphanage had a sponsors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a church, sometimes it's a family, mm -hmm. yeah. 
And my sponsors happened to be a, a family. And so, and at the orphanage, what we did periodically is write letters to our sponsors. And some ch boys would get letters from their sponsors and others don't. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those that did not receive any letter until I graduated from, or I was about to graduate from high school. And I, and I wrote a letter to my sponsors because we were required to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I told them this will be my last year at the orphanage and I'll be graduated from high school. And lo and behold, I got a letter back from them saying, uh, so what are you gonna do when you graduate? And I wrote back and I said, I don't know. I'd like to continue my schooling, but I have no means or the funds or any of that. So I did not know what to do. But then they wrote back again and they said, well, we'll be willing to help you if we can find a school, you know. Mm -hmm. So with that, I did uh, register in college at, uh, in Lebanon. And so they were sending, you know, funds to cover my tuition and some expenses like books and, and so on. I was able to get a part-time job with another missionary organization, mm -hmm. stuffing envelopes, mm -hmm. uh, running errands for them, things like that, mm -hmm. cleaning the church, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, that kind of gave me my transportation and food, but I had no place to stay. So the orphanage uh, gave me a room to stay in in return, I would help out at the orphanage. So I wasn't really part of the program anymore. I wasn't part of the orphanage. But, but they let you stay there after me, you graduated. Stay there, but I was became like almost staff, mm -hmm. not quite full time staff. But I would help out. So I would help out some of the boys there with homework, with uh, you know, uh, with uh, devotion time, uh, supervise meal times. Uh, supervise some of the boys when they had to do chores. Uh, so, you know, I helped out with that. In return, they gave me a room to stay in. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and I was there until I came to the States. And these missionaries were from which country? They're actually from Wisconsin, believe it or from not. From Wisconsin. He is from Wisconsin, Basketball, Wisconsin, which is southwest Wisconsin, and his wife is from Duluth, grew up in Duluth. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah, so this part of the world. Yes. You mean yes. you ended up back out here. Yeah. So they had two kids that were growing up in the orphanage, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and... From when they were really little, they were mm -hmm. they their mm -hmm. whole childhood was mm -hmm. at this mm -hmm. orphanage, mm -hmm. and you became friends with their kids, well, or came, just became part of the family. I mean, they're there. You're just we all part of the family. We play together, we eat together, we just you know fight together. <laughs> you know, it's just like one big family. Mm -hmm. you know? Except you know the mission is that you know thirty six other boys to care, yeah, care for in addition yeah. to them. But then basically they had. One son that was born, I think the year I came, before I came to the orphanage. So they had, an old, had a son about your age, a daughter, and then a baby. And then they had another girl later on. So they had okay. two boys, two girls. Okay. Uh, but the girl was born back in the early 60s or something. Okay. So where along the way did you develop a relationship with 
their daughter. You <laughs> was it the older daughter? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So you grew up for many years with her in this same mm-hmm. house, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there were many other kids at the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was that like for you? Was it just after you graduated that you were working there that you uh, know I, actually, things we, like, so progressed? family, like siblings. Yeah. Know? And, uh, you know, her brother and I were the best friends. You know, we did a lot of mischief together. We did a lot of things together. We fought, we played, we did, you know, we were like siblings. Mm-hmm. We would. And, uh, and then uh, when I, I when I came to, the, and we've always stayed in touch, you know, so when I came to the U.S. and, and living in San Jose, I mean, I would write letters to them. I would we always stay in touch. And, and uh, then their daughter, her name is Becky. Uh, Becky uh, moved to Chico, California. Hmm. And uh, and so, how far was that from you? Uh, from San Jose, it's about you know, under three hours drive. Okay. It's it's north of uh, Sacramento. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it was probably two hours, two and a half hours drive. It wasn't too bad. And there were two other guys that actually we grew up together at the orphanage who made their way to the U.S. later on. And they came to San Jose because I was there, so they had a place to stay. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why they came to San Jose. Yeah. Because I was there before they did. And uh, so, anyway, we used to go up to Chico, see Becky, and so on. She'd come down to San Jose, she'd stay with us, you know, guys. And up that to that point, there was nothing romantic between us. You were siblings <laughs> we before were siblings. that point, yeah, yeah when you were siblings. little, yeah. And uh, until I turned about 25 or so, up to that point, I wasn't really thinking much of marriage or of that. Mm-hmm. And I did not I had a lot of friends, but none of them were for any, you know, romantic purposes or any marriage or any of that. Right. I was, you know, part of the church youth group. Uh-huh. We used to do things together, go skiing together, go swimming to the beach together. We did. I was part of a our youth group. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then at the age of 25, 26, I started thinking more, no, you know, I better think of the future here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, so I started kind of, you know, dating girls and with the prospect of maybe, you know, future mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, life partner. And, uh, and as I gotten to know girls and so on, one of the things found out in the back of my mind is I always evaluated if I, she and and I went back home, how would she accept my people? Mm. Would she, you know, doesn't, wouldn't like the way they look, would she would not like the way they dress, or the way, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. how would they accept the culture, you know, all mm-hmm. that? And, uh, and if I felt that, you know, she would not accept them, or would not fit into that culture and that, I basically kind of broke it off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then over time, I found myself, you know, 
basically comparing girls to Becky because she lived there, she grew up there, she knew the people, she knew the culture, she knew everything. Yeah. And uh, so one day when Becky was visiting us in San Jose, I got this crazy idea <laughs> to ask her if she would marry me. <laughs> wow. So you had no thought in your head for all this time, and then you kind of were thinking about maybe getting married at some point, and then you started comparing everybody to Becky, and then Becky came to visit. She became the and you asked, And she was the measurement by which you measured all these yeah. other girls. And, and then she came... Stuck in my mind, crazy idea. Oh, if she's a yardstick, why not ask the yardstick herself? <laughs> <laughs> wow, so Becky came to visit, mm-hmm. and you asked her to marry you? Mm-hmm. How did you ask her? What did she like? <laughs> what did she say? Was she super surprised? Uh, she yeah, she was very surprised, you know. Uh, and she was not anticipating that. And uh, you know, it took a lot of courage, a lot of you know, wringing my hands and shivering and <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I you know there were some other things that kind of bled to that. But at that time, Becky had broken up a relationship with, with uh, a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't ready for an, an, another relationship. So she did not say no, but she did not say yes. I took it to mean no. Uh, went on with my search. Uh-huh. <laughs> a year later, Becky calls me. We, we always stayed in touch. We talked. So she called, and we were talking the phone for a while. And uh, she said, uh, you know, uh, I talk, called you a couple of weeks ago. This is before cell phone. Before uh-huh. This is when you had to pay long distance for yeah. your calls. And she said, I called you, you know, about a week earlier, or a week ago. And she said, you weren't home. And I said, yeah. I was out with Jean. Jean was the girl I was dating at the time. And uh, how was Jean? Becky had met Jean and so on. So mm-hmm. she knew. And uh, so how was Jean doing? And so I told her that, you know, that night we broke up. Oh, so Becky happened to call on the same night that you broken up no, with no, Jean? No, no, yeah, A week or two later. Okay. But she had called me that, that night. The, yeah. She had called you the night that but you broke up with home, Jean. But I wasn't home. You didn't answer the phone. No, and right. she calls you a week later, <laughs> and you're like, oh, sorry, I was breaking up with my girlfriend that yeah. night. Yeah. Okay, so Becky calls a week later again and talks to you. So we talked, we talked, and then she goes, you remember the question you asked me a year ago? I said, how can I forget? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she said, is the question still there? Mm. <laughs> so, was it, but, I don't know, three months after that, we were married. <laughs> wow. Well, for us, we did not have to go through courtship or dating, because we knew you each You knew other. each other very, very well. Very well, you know. Uh, so, when I called her dad, and I asked him, Take his hand in marriage. He goes, well, you know what you're getting into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you got married three months later. You were mm-hmm. living in 
California. Mm-hmm. So she moved to San Jose? Yeah. yeah. We had the wedding here in Winona. And then we moved to, you know, to, well, we drove her car back to California with her stuff. And we, uh, this was in 78. And then we had our first child in 79. 13 months later, uh, then in 82, we had another child in 81, and then in 82 I left, we went to Saudi Arabia, and we were there until November of 84. So you lived in Saudi Arabia for two years? Over two years, you know, less than, short of. Three? Yeah. Okay. Short of three years. So. Two years and nine months or something. What were you doing in Saudi Arabia? I worked for Bechtel Corporation, which is an engineering uh, contractor. Uh, Bechtel, it's not a household name, but it, they, they basically do build big projects, like mm-hmm. the Hoover Dam mm-hmm. built by Bechtel. Mm. They build huge shopping centers, many, many power plants are built by Bechtel. Mm. Airports are built by Bechtel, things like that. Yeah. So they're, they're big engineering. They were actually, had a contract to build an industrial city for the Saudis in there. So I went as a computer programmer. Okay. That must have been quite an experience. It was an Moving from experience. California to yeah, Saudi Arabia. An experience, yeah. yeah. And then coming to Minnesota. <laughs> so after Saudi Arabia, you moved to Minnesota. Yes. And you've been here for the last 35 years almost. 35 years, yeah. Wow, so this is the where you've lived the longest in your That's life. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you raised your children here in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and where are they now? Well, our, our oldest is living in Washington D.C. and she and her husband, and she does government work. You know, uh, she worked for a congressman from Minnesota for a while, Jim Oberstar. Okay. And, uh, but then she worked for companies that actually contract with the government. And that's what she's doing right now. And then we have a second child, a daughter, lives in Seattle. She's got two children. Our f- number three child, Brent, the boy, Biff. And he actually, after graduating from college, uh, worked for one year for AmeriCorps and then went to work at the same orphanage where I was. So he graduated, she, he worked for AmeriCorps and then he went to work at the orphanage that you were at? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really... And, and he's married, he's got two kids. And, uh, and then our youngest is uh, Wisconsin State Patrol living near Madison. So if you're driving around the medicine area, watch your speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you told me and that... And then we had two other boys that were, became part of our family. Uh, Chan is from South Sudan. He was, you know, uh, came to us when he was about 11, 12 years old or so. And, uh, and then Lloyd, who's from Liberia, also is part of our family. 
So how did you meet these kids and take them in as part of your family? It's, Jam uh, was, uh, his, his from his tribal people, or his tribe, his people, were using the church we were going to for their uh, church services. And so my wife and my kids were doing Sunday school and, you know, uh, nursery for them while they're having their services. And so she got to meet Jim there and, and then found out that he has no parents, no family here. He was living with some relatives from the tribe, you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's when we offered to take him in. And Lloyd, we got to know him through the school. My wife did substitute teaching and she knew that he did not have ideal home situation and and uh, so she offered that, that he could come and live with us and so he did and that's how we how long ago was that well Jam is 35 years old he's between the two boys in Birmingham he's, and he came he was about 11 years old so that would be uh, 24 years ago <laughs> a long time they've been part of your family and, and Lloyd came maybe about four or five years after that mm-hmm. so Becky's a teacher she's actually a nurse by trade mm-hmm. but uh, then in later years when we had our kids and uh, she started and our youngest was uh, enough to bundle and take to school she started volunteering at the school Okay. And, uh, and that led into working for the school, and then that led into becoming a substitute teacher. Okay, wow. She has many talents. <laughs> so you said that your son went to work with the orphanage that you grew up in, mm-hmm. and your in-laws presumably were there for a long time. 36 years. 36 yeah. years. Uh-huh. And then you ended up, working there again or how was it what was your connection again to uh the, the orphanage was always uh, near and dear to my heart mm-hmm. you know I, I mean i continued starting with my uh uh first job is i start paying back the money that my sponsor my sponsor did not want the money back you know uh he actually he was a vice president of general electric oh wow yes and uh, so, so the uh, so so I stopped paying back to the orphanage, you know, and I continued to, you know, when that got paid off, my my whatever they spent on me for college, uh, I continued you to know, support the to orphanage. Support the orphanage. And uh, and then in two thousand and five or so. I was invited to uh, serve on the board of directors of the organization. The organization is called Kids Alive International. Kids Alive International? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the only orphanage that they no, run? No, no, no. They actually, they started out in China, and then when China turned communist, uh, or communist you know, rule came to China, they closed. Well, they actually did not close the orphanage. They took over the orphanage. Mm-hmm. And it became part of their social services okay. uh, 
So this yeah. it was a state-owned orphanage state, at that point. State-owned orphanage. Actually, I did visit orphanage in 2016. The same facility, same place where the original orphanage was. Yeah. Anyway, uh, wow. Different story. Uh, the, so uh, I was invited to serve on the board of directors, which I did for about seven years. During that time, uh, the organization needed somebody to oversee the. Uh, work, uh, the Kids Alive have orphanages in about 14 different countries. Uh, and so uh, the need, there was a need to oversee the orphanage work in Africa and the Middle East. And after several months of search, nothing panned out. So that's when I, you know, was asked if I would be willing to to take on that role. So they appointed you as the director well, of what Africa I did, no, in the what Middle I East? Did is that I, I uh, took early retirement from Fairview and stepped off the board and I took on the role of uh, vice president of operations for Africa and the Middle East. So I oversaw the, the uh, work in Kenya, Zambia, Sudan, South Sudan, and Lebanon, the orphanage where I grew up. Wow. So presumably you had to travel quite a bit to visit yes. all the different yes. locations. I spent quite a bit. I would say probably close to six months of the year uh, on the road, different visiting each country and so on, overseeing some of that work. So what were your roles as part? Did you have to like monitor certain things or um, make improvements in certain areas? Well, or? I'm responsible for the operations of those orphanages. So, so would you have, spend a period of time yeah, at the I mean, orphanage? Yeah, I would have to see how, first of all, how the kids are being taken care of, the schooling for the kids, accommodations for the kids, you know, uh, feeding, clothing, medical care, you know, all of that. I just have to see, make sure that it's all being done properly and to code and done well, we, you know. So, you know, basically, and then, you know, talk about growth and needs and, you know, uh, I mean, it, uh, there was always, you know, there's always more kids than you can take care of. And so we're always thinking of growth and, you know, and areas of growth. And also improvements, as you know, and uh, uh, you know. So basically, it was operations. <laughs> yeah. So, what was that like for you to have grown up in this orphanage and moved to a different country, and then years later, been put in charge of the orphanage in which you grew up? That's really come full circle. What was that kind of a surreal experience for you? It was very, very rewarding experience. Uh, it's something I, you know, cherished a lot. And in, in a lot of ways, the fact that, you know, I grew up in one of the orphanages uh, was, came in very, very, very handy when I'm there at the orphanage in Kenya or Zambia, or, you know. And a lot of times when I'm there, you know, I would eat with the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I would, you know, whatever they're eating, I will eat. You know, I would go spend time with them in the evenings, mm -hmm. you know, watching them studying or 
mm-hmm. helping them sometimes helping them with homework and so on and developing relationship with the, with them as well and you know just kind of some of the early stories kind of you know playing games with them and sitting down and so the kids get you know curious and of course they, they all get to know my story and that I grew up in an orphanage and, and I tell them I know what what they go through mm-hmm you you have the unique perspective of really understanding their situation and caring about the quality mm-hmm. of what these kids are receiving mm-hmm. so that you know because you've because you've been through it yourself yeah so you know i try to encourage them you know not to give up there's hope you know they have to keep on the faith mm-hmm. they have to work hard mm-hmm. it doesn't come easily yeah you know and a lot of fun times i remember things like they would ask me questions when you were at the orphanage did you get in trouble were you ever punished <laughs> oh was i punished <laughs> oh did i get in trouble <laughs> mm-hmm. things like that yeah and basically just to let them know that i'm not any different than they are mm-hmm. you're very relatable your experience yeah. to what they're experiencing yeah well that's it, it i mean you were a role model for them too it, it i'm sure gave them a lot of hope to see your success and mm-hmm. um the stability and family and everything that you have um as something that is attainable for them i know a lot of kids who grow up um, in a in a home or with away from their family mm-hmm. um, end up feeling like there's you know they they don't have as many opportunities or you know there is you know there are a ver- variety of limitations and yeah, having yeah. Mm-hmm. your success story I'm sure was encouraging for them yeah. you know I basically but I have to be realistic with them so you don't know what path God is gonna take you through Yeah. Uh, uh, not everybody I grew up with at, at, at the orphanage in Lebanon, many of them become successful, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of them is an oncologist. One of them was vice president uh, with uh, Samsung. Uh, one of them, you know, uh, CFO or some of that with uh, uh, Philips or, you know. I mean, they became very successful. Yes. Some of them, one of them, he and I went to school together. He's my age. We, we were in the same grade throughout all, all of our years. And he's a professor of math, mathematics professor in Canada. You know, what I'm saying is that each person takes a different path. Yeah. But in each situation is that you have an obligation to do what you need to do for your own successes. At the same time, God cares about you, and He has provisions for you, and He will see you through. Mm. It, it's not just you're gonna sit there and things are gonna they're gonna come to you on a silver platter. Yeah, it, it's gonna take work and commitment and dedication. Yeah, and you have to trust that whatever path you're on is is, right is what's path. meant for you. Yeah. You know, it's not always mm. what you envision mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, there are good things 
no matter what lies ahead. So you were on the board for how many years? Seven years. Seven years, and then you also were operations manager for seven years? No, four years. Four years. So you were on the board for seven years, mm-hmm. and then and operations. Then we found somebody who's younger. And four years. You know, and uh, to take over. Able I, basically, basically, I said I would do it for, because I was close to re, you know, retiring. Retiring. And, and I said I could do it for four to five years. And three to five years, I said, until we find somebody. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my fourth year, we found somebody to take over. Was that bittersweet? I mean, were you glad to be home more? Or was that kind of a a really, I'm sure that was a meaningful time for you to develop those relationships with the kids and and work in that role? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I I got to to a point that I knew somebody, you know, it's it's time to take it to... to, uh, Pass the baton to somebody else. Yeah. And like I said, I took it on early on with the intention that this would be temporary until we find somebody, you know, uh, to take it over. You know, it wasn't intended to be a long, long term. Yeah. So looking back over your experience, what would you tell your younger self? If you could tell yourself as a child something like, I don't know if you had anxiety as a child or you uh, worried, you know, worried about different things or if there's anything that, um, any wisdom that you would wish to pass down, is there something that comes to mind that you either wish you would have known or that you would like to leave as an encouragement? Oh, there's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, obviously... Growing up, you have no idea what the future is. Mm-hmm. You have no idea where this is going to lead you to. Uh, and uh, so there was always anxiety uh, about the future. And uh, but the, the thing that I would say, and I'm saying it more retroactively after the fact as compared to, I mean, not saying that I actually practiced that when I was going through it, but, you know, it is, is, uh, is having faith that for me, that I did not get to where I am uh, because of my good looks. Mm-hmm. I don't have any. <laughs> Uh, not because of my smarts, mm-hmm. uh, not because of really anything I did per se, and I I had faith that uh, there's a God who created me for a purpose. He's gonna take care of me. How, where, when, I don't know. So if, if I was to advise, that's what I advise my kids, that's what I advise anybody, is to have faith, mm. you know, that, uh, you, know, that uh, you are not uh, left here 
by accident. Mm -hmm. He did not come here by accident. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, when I was in my first year of college, just about to finish the first year of college, I my nationality because my family was living in Syria, they took on Syrian citizenship because there came a point where you had to have nationality. Because up to that point, being we had no papers, we had no documents, we had nothing to say who we are. So when you were in the orphanage, they helped, they needed the paperwork, or was no, it not no, until no. college? They, they, this, they, we did not get the paperwork until I was in middle school. Middle school, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, no, uh, elementary school, I should say. Did you ever my elementary school. Did you ever see your parents again? Oh yeah, I would go and visit them. You know, uh, the the uh, I did not get to see them until probably three years after I came to the orphanage. So I was with the chief for two years and then three years. So you were so, ten, so around about ten about years 10, old before maybe you... eleven, closer to eleven actually. Mm -hmm. That I was able to, well actually when I was 10 my mother found out where I was and uh, she came to visit me and and with the intention to take me because thinking you know I'll be old enough now to help out with you know herding the sheep and mm -hmm. goats and so on that they have but when she saw where I am and conditions and she did ask me you know you want to come with me? And I said, no, you know, and because by then, I mean, I've been there for- You have another life at that point. Life, yeah. yeah. I mean, and you kind of almost, you know, up to that point, your family and all that becomes more like a dream mm -hmm. or something. They become more distant. More distance, more, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cloudy yeah. in your mind. So. But you were so young when yeah, you left yeah. them, yeah. And so the orphanage was my home. That's mm -hmm. where I connected. You know, that's the place where I, you know, went to school. Because up to that point, before coming to the orphanage, I did not know what the word school meant. Mm. You know, I mm -hmm. had no schooling whatsoever. You know, and so here I was going to school. I was being fed. I was being dressed. I was, you know, mm -hmm. housed. And a lot of boys to play with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and play yeah. And, and learn instead yeah. of working. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, but yeah, I did I did see when when I was after her first visit, then about the age of 12, I was old enough to travel by myself, mm -hmm. so I did that. So I would go once a year for about a week to two, about two weeks or so, and go visit with them, spend how far back. was it from Lebanon to or Beirut well, area to days, in, Syria? In those days, now you could be there in a couple an hour maybe, except crossing the borders, you know. Mm -hmm. But in those days, you would get on a bus in Beirut. Have you seen the movie "The Gods Must Be Crazy"? Yes. You remember that bus that the uh -huh. is teacher traveled on? Yes. I think they got that from from <laughs> <laughs> It was a bus like that. You got in it with the chicken and the goals uh -huh. and everything else, you know. 
Yeah. And it would stop at every village, every mm-hmm. that. So that was a whole day journey. You left like, you know, seven o'clock in the morning or something like that. And by the time you, you got there, it was sunset. <laughs> wow. So it was a journey. So, so it was a journey. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so anyway, that, that was, you know, I would, I would go every, mm-hmm. to, to every summer. Every Did summer you have siblings? Day. Did, did your parents have any I, other children? I, yeah, I, I'm the oldest, and they had a brother three years younger than I am. Then they had a daughter three years younger than he is, and then another brother, and then another sister. So, but you didn't uh, get, well, I guess you got to spend time later on. Mm-hmm. You got to know them a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you been in touch with them as an adult? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what I do now when I go to see you Lebanon. go see them. They're all actually all in Lebanon. in Lebanon. Refugees, yeah, living in Lebanon. So yeah, and I stay with them in the tent when I go to Lebanon. Wow. Yeah. When was the last time you were in Lebanon? Uh, last April, May. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you needed to get your paperwork, you established a, um, paperwork with the Syrian citizenship. So my, yeah, in, in the mid sixties. Because up to that point now, yeah, if you want to buy land, you have to have an, you know, ID to buy anything. You have to, you know. So my everybody in the tribe was forced to register. So those who were in Lebanon registered in Lebanon that Lebanese identities, and those who were in Syria. In those cases, you know, up to that point, there was no countries, there was no governments. Mm. You know, Lebanon and Syria were ruled by France up to that point. Jordan mm. was ruled by England. And Iraq was ruled by England and so on. Anyway, so countries were taking independence in the late 40s, mid 40s, so the governments were just being formed. So they were starting to establish, you know, nationality and, you know, who's a citizen, who's not, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. So it was open, you know, to anybody. So my family living in Syria, they went and got Syrian identities. While in college, my first year in college, I got my draft notice to the Syrian army. Mm. At that point, I thought, you know, you just go in and submit your paperwork. You're in college, you're in school, and they will postpone like, your military service. So I got all the paperwork from the school. The school was, they had many other Syrian students, but they were all come from high-class families. Their parents are either big businessmen or in the government or and so the school had, you know, a, a system for Syrian uh, students. Mm-hmm. So I got that folder. I got every, all the papers that I needed. Got everything completed, signed, you know, notarized by different the Department of Education and everyone else in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Went to Syria, submitted my papers, all of that, and. As it turned out, I was denied, you know, postponing. You were denied deferral. Deferral of my military service to finish my education. Although the law says anyone who's in school can defer their military service until they're done with school, but I wasn't anybody. (laughs) So only if you're elite relative of some... Wow. So So is that what prompted you to... To move what, what happened is that I came back to the school 
with the intent of dropping school because I had no other option, I had no other choice. And so my papers of dropping school went before the assistant to the president of the school, uh, who by the name Charles Forbes. Uh, I did not meet Mr. Forbes or, you know, he actually one time he felt substituted for an English teacher because she had broke, fell and broke her wrists or something like that. Mm. So he substituted for her, but that was, I was one of 40 students and mm -hmm. he was, did it, I think two or three lessons that week. And that was the only encounter, you know. Yeah. I mean, I see him on campus because he ran the school basically. And you yeah. see him walking on campus, but I did not know him, he did not know me, you know, mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. So my papers to drop school came through his office. So he left me, and this is when he had a mailbox. This mm -hmm. is before email. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he left me a note in my mailbox stopped by my office. So I went to his office and he says, I hear you're dropping school. I said, yeah, why? I told him I, I got drafted to the Syrian army and they, they refused my, to defer my military service. And uh, so he asked why, why did they refuse? I said, well, because I don't, because they did, you know, one guy in the, in the draft board says, told me outside the building, do you have some connections here? You know, if you got some connections we can work, we can work with, we can defer your service. I said, no, I don't have any connections. Uh, do you have any money? You know, if you come up with some money, we could work it out. I said, I don't have any money. Wow. And he said, well, how about joining the, if you join the Ba'ath Party, which is the ruling party in Syria, mm. and he said, if you join the Ba'ath Party, maybe we could see what we can do for you. I said, okay, I'll think about it. Well, I had no intentions of joining the Ba'ath Party, because mm. you know, once you join that, there's no way out. Mm. So I, uh, I decided, you know, I'll drop school, I will go serve in the military and see whatever happens after that, I don't know. But deep inside, I knew that the opportunity for me to go back to college because my sponsors at the orphanage were paying for my tuition there, that probably will be gone. I will yeah. never have that opportunity yeah. again. So the, the uh, Charles Forbes asked me why they did not defer it at all, and this is what discussion I had with one of the officials of the draft board mm -hmm. outside the building. And uh, said, okay. He had already, I think when my papers came through, he was just curious as to why am I dropping school. He found out that I'm being helped and somebody else paying for my tuition and so on. So he got a little bit more information about me. The next day, to to wrap up all the paperwork and so on for dropping school because I had to pay for all the test tubes that I broke in the lab and, oh my. <laughs> and yeah. things like that, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and finish all the paperwork in the admission office. You know, I was about maybe an hour from leaving school, you know, wrapping things up and, and heading to Syria. I decided I'm gonna go check my mailbox one more time before I turn my key in. Mm -hmm. 
And there was a note from Charles Forbes saying, stop by my office, come see me or something. Okay, what does he want? He thought, you know, I saw you already yesterday. Talked to him. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to his office and uh, he said, uh, you know, if you go to Syria, you're going to be, all your education is going to go to waste, which is true, because in my draft papers, they estimated my education to be equivalent to fifth grade. Really? Mm -hmm. Even, though you're, even though you're in university? I, st I, st I still have that draft card with me, with my documents in it. Not only that, because actually, some of those Syrian students were weak in English and other subjects and so on. And you were fluent, and strong actually, in English. What I was doing is that after each lecture, if we have a physics lecture, so mm -hmm. I would meet with them right after the lecture and I would explain to them things that they did not understand. So they, I, would, I mean, I'd never go over the lecture, but they would ask me questions. Okay, the professor said this, and what did he mean by that? Or what does that mean? So I would help them understand mm -hmm. what was what the lecture was about. And I did that for their math, for after each math class and after each physics class, and some chemistry classes too. Wow. And uh, so I go to Syria, they say my education is equivalent to fifth grade. Wow. And they said I have no degrees because there's a section that says, what degree do you hold? And it's black. And I can show it to you. I have it still with me till today. Wow. <laughs> anyway. So Charles said, you know, if you go to Syria, your, edu your, your education is going to be worth nothing. He said, yeah, and the draft book, which I had it in my pocket, I showed it. I said, it says I have no degree, and my education is equivalent to fifth grade. Then he goes, and if you stay in Lebanon, because your nationality is Syrian, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to find a job mm -hmm. here in Lebanon. I mm -hmm. said, yeah, I know that. He said, you're stuck. In my mind, just tell him that. But in my mind, he said, yeah, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then he said, my wife and I talked about your case yesterday. Mm. And he said, the only way for you, only for you, is he said, a lot has been invested in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've come a long ways. But it's going to be for not, if, you know, if you stay here. Mm -hmm. The only way, the only way for you is to get out of this part of the world. Mm. I said, well, yeah, how? You know, because Syria is not going to give me a passport to travel. If they're going to allow me to travel, right? I'm, you know, I'm being drafted. I said, I, I, I cannot go anywhere. I don't have a passport for that. He said, don't worry about that. He said. My wife and I decided to help you immigrate to the United States. Wow. Yeah, that's what I told him. I don't have a passport. I don't have a home. I immigrate. He said, don't worry about that. And I said, well, I need to talk to my family about it and so on. And I said, how much time do you need? Well, it takes a day to get there, I told you. Mm -hmm. I have to spend a day with them and then a day back. Mm -hmm. It'll take three days. He said, OK. Go talk to your family, and when you come back, stop by my office. Because in those days, to get back into class, you had to have a permission, because I've been gone for almost, you know, 
two weeks, mm-hmm. you know, with this fiasco. This whole situation, yeah. So I needed the permission to get back into classes. You know. I don't think they do that in school anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, but that was the rules in those days. Anyway, so I went back to my parents. Of course, they were wondering, you know, who is this man? Do you know him? I said, no, I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> why does he want to help you? I don't know why he wants to help me, you know? And then I said, told my dad, you know, well, God brought him my way. I don't think he intends harm. I don't think he intends me. I need help, you know? Maybe God brought him my way to help me out. And my dad said, well, son, you're old enough. You make your own decision. I said, if it's okay with you, I'm going to take him up on his offer. Mm. So I went back to school, stopped by his office, and he said, so what did you decide? He said, if you're still willing to help me, uh, I would be very honored and pleased. And, uh, you know, I'd be grateful. Mm-hmm. Whatever, of course, I can't remember exactly what, but things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, you got a lecture at, you know, this was like first thing in the morning. Okay, you got a 10 o'clock lecture, you got a 1 11 o'clock, you get it. You're done by 1.30 or some of that, you know. Come to my office at 2. Came <laughs> <laughs> to his office at 2 o'clock. We left the campus, like the taxi. We were on our way to the U.S. Embassy, filed for immigration papers. Without a passport. Without a passport. Without any paperwork. Without well, what happened is that the embassy, he happened to have know the counselor just a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, not, not too much, but he's, he had somebody, he's been acquainted with the counselor. Mm-hmm. And so he explained to the counselor my situation. Mm-hmm. And so the embassy said what we could do is declare him stateless, mm-hmm. and which means you have no papers, nothing. Right. And we can declare him to be stateless, and then we can process him immigrate to the U.S. and on those bases. Well, if you're stateless, then what they happen is that the embassy would can give you a paper document, a letter, indicating that you're being accepted to immigrate to the United States. Then you take that to the Red Cross, and then the Red Cross give you a travel document that's okay. inter- international, you know, mm-hmm. for you United Nations that you can use to travel from your point A to point B, only one way. Mm-hmm. It's not, you cannot use it for that, you know. Right, but not for general travel. To people who have been accepted uh, by a country, uh, host country. Mm-hmm. And so when I, the, uh, the, 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 uh, it took a year for me to get my uh, visa, immigration visa. Uh, so meanwhile, I continued to go to school but I could not go back to Syria anymore because mm-hmm. I'm a draft evader now. Right. At that point. So a year later, I got the letter from the embassy saying, you know, your visa is here. I took that to the Red Cross. I was given a travel document. I came back to the embassy. And within three weeks, I was here. It took a year for you to get your paperwork? Is that what you said? The embassy, at the embassy. At but the embassy. Meanwhile, I continued to go. You to continued school in school. In, in, at, the, at the college I was going to. Wow, that's so, an amazing story. I'm sure it's really humbling to have 
had so many direct interventions in your life where your life could have ended up very differently if certain circumstances hadn't happened, you know? So, when, when I talk to youth groups at church and things like that, I say, what do you think of bad luck? You know? Uh-huh. I would tell them that if my, first of all, I had nothing to do if my dad was blind. Mm-hmm. And if my dad was not blind, they would not have sent me out at the age of five to take mm-hmm. care of the sheep. So if they had not sent me out, I would not have been abused by the elder shepherds. If I had not been abused, the chief would not have taken me into his home you know, or to live with him mm-hmm. at, at the age of five. If they hadn't taken me to I would not have met those missionaries. Mm-hmm. If I had not met those missionaries, I would not have been placed in the orphanage. If I had not been placed in the orphanage, I would never have met, first of all, never, never got to education, never went to school, never done it. But because I was placed in the orphanage, I got sponsored by the Kents, who was, you know, was, and if I hadn't been sponsored by that, I would never made it to college. And if I had not made it to college, okay, I would not have met Charles Forbes. And if I had not been drafted by the student army in the middle of my college years, you know, I would not have been in the United States. Yes, those are all bad lucks. But if those things had not happened, your life would have been very different. It's really incredible to be able to look back and be appreciative of things that were really painful and difficult to go through in the moment. Yeah. Uh, Each one of those situations that you think are bad luck led to something, led to something, led to something, and that's why I'm here today. Mm. You know? So, is that bad luck or divine intervention? Mm-hmm. Yes, God could have rolled the red carpet for me when I was five years old, and you know, all the way. But you know what? I probably would not have appreciated it mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. The experiences we go through in life is what helps us build character mm-hmm. and help us become who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say bad luck. I call it divine intervention. But. That's the way it had to happen for me to get to where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wouldn't want it any other way. Amazing. I think many times the things that we go through are definitely for our own benefit and character development, mm-hmm. as you're saying. But it's also for the benefit of others, too, that we can be a blessing or a, an encouragement to other people because of the things that we've been through, because we can understand their circumstances better than if we hadn't been through the things we've been through, or because we see things in a new way that we wouldn't have been able to see at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think we do miss so much 
when we have everything all laid out for us and we don't have the trials in the moment it may seem better to not ever have to deal with the trials Mm -hmm. but when the trials refine you and build empathy and build character and open up other opportunities then at the end of it you turn back and you say I wouldn't have it any other way that's beautiful a little story just to kind of illustrate that is that uh, I was in Texas with some friends we went to church, and after the service, he needed to run a few errands and so on. So he introduced me to two couples that were standing there talking and so on. And he said, okay, why don't you visit with me? He took me there, introduced me to them. He said, why don't you visit with them and so on. I'll be back in 10, 15 minutes here, you know. So they were already in some conversation, the two couples. You know, mm-hmm. And I just, you know, budged in, you know. So I was just standing there listening to them talk. And they were talking about, they'd been to some kind of a barbecue in somebody's backyard. And one of the things that was served was goat meat. And one of the wives uh, said, goat meat, how could anybody eat that? I mean, I didn't know you could eat goat meat and on and on. Goat meat. And then I said, do you mind if I, up to that point, I was just listening. I didn't say a word. And I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? She goes, yeah, please do. I said, have you ever been hungry to the point, I don't mean hungry that, oh, dinner is good, not, Thanksgiving dinner is not until 3 o'clock and I'm starving, or I can hardly <laughs> wait till, you know, you know yeah. when dinner is served, and, you know, mm-hmm. those kind of, I don't mean that kind of hungry. I said, have you ever been hungry enough that you don't know where your next meal is going to come from? Mm-hmm. She stopped and gazed for a minute. She goes, no, I really have never been that hungry. I said, then you don't know what you're missing. Mm. Yeah. You don't have that perspective <laughs> when you haven't lived it. And I think um, what your story also illustrates is that when we don't have that shared experience or that perspective, we tend to be a lot more judgmental. And the more that we can understand the experiences of others or have lived them ourselves, lived through difficult things ourselves, um, the more compassion we have, the more, the stronger ability we have to understand and communicate with each other. And it, ends up breaking down barriers mm-hmm. that we build like we build because we um and sometimes unintentionally but you know there's um so many things that divide us and um the more we can relate and understand or get to know someone in their experience the more barriers it breaks down mm-hmm. for sure yeah so is there a word that you really resonate with or that you feel like encapsulates your life or that has just been really meaningful to you? It's something that becomes more and more meaningful as time goes by. And and that is the word faith. Mm. You have to have faith. Mm. And the, the Bible says, 
book of Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, mm -hmm. the evidence of things not seen. Mm. You can't have hope if you don't have faith. That's to me. Uh -huh. People will probably disagree with me on that. Okay? But you can't really have hope if you don't have faith. And, and it's faith that is, you don't know what the future is going to be, you don't see the future, but your faith is the evidence of things that you don't see, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I love that definition of faith, mm -hmm. you know? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Mm -hmm. And it, my advice to anybody, have faith, don't give up hope. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Jed. Thank you so much for being here and you sharing your story. Thank you for giving me that opportunity to, to share my story. You have an incredible story and um, have just had such a journey from when you were very little that God has brought you on. And that's been really clearly evident in your life. And you continue to share that with youth groups and with people that you encounter and you know I think that it's like a fire where a little faith ends up encouraging all the people around and it continues to light the fires of other other people that is maybe dwindling so thank you for sharing your story and for being an encouragement <laughs> I hope it's been an encouragement it will be encouragement to about who listens to it you know and I hope it gives you some hope and faith Things will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially right now, you look at the, the world and you see so many things falling apart. And it's hard to have hope sometimes that yeah. it's all going to work out. But we have to understand that we're not in control and things will work out. So, well, thank you. Well, thank you. You've been listening to The Way Life Should Be, music written by Jenny and Tyler, entitled Love Through Me. Follow us online at Life B Podcast for updates. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.